This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Life Lessons. In the first half, Mitt Romney shares his address, Life Lessons from the Front. Then in the second half, Dan Clark speaks on the four steps on the stairway to heaven. It seems like only a few years where I sat, where you're sitting, or actually in the Wilkinson Center. Things were, uh, were different then. The Beatles were the only boy band. Um, <laughs> Bell Telephone was the only telephone company in the country. BYU cafeteria food was all they served at the Cougar Eat. And uh, Emma was Joseph Smith's only wife. Uh, <laughs> Now, I was an English major, and that meant that I liked reading and writing. It also meant that I had no idea what I was going to do with my career. (laughs) The self-help guides that I read said I was doomed because they claimed that to have a successful life, you had to have a clear goal in mind and then work relentlessly for that goal. But that isn't how life worked out for me. As a matter of fact, almost nothing I've done in my career was planned in advance. I could hardly have predicted that I would get into politics, for instance. When I stepped into the auditorium to debate Ted Kennedy in Boston's famous Faneuil Hall, I turned to Anne and I said to her, Sweetie, in your wildest dreams, did you ever see me running for U.S. Senate? And she said, Mitt, you weren't in my wildest dreams. (laughs) I've gotten some mileage out of that line, but the truth is, She didn't really say that. (laughs) That was a joke I bought from a campaign joke writer. And and every time I hear some politician use that joke, I want a royalty. It's not fair. Now, you probably know the most remarkable of my life's journeys was the one I only recently completed, and that was having the honor of running for president. And in case you haven't heard, I lost. Actually, I'd prefer to say that I won the silver medal. Uh, It's something that gives you perspective. Um, I remember Walter Mondale. He had the misfortune of running against Ronald Reagan and losing badly. He got shellacked in that race. And he he remarked that he always wanted to run for president in the worst way. And that's just what he did. (laughs) Now, despite the loss, the experience was extraordinary and revealing. I've come away more optimistic about the country. I met people from across the nation. People who don't make the nightly news, but people who make daily innovations and discoveries that propel our economy and provide for our future. I met parents who sacrificed their resources and their careers, in some cases, for their kids. Military men and women who willingly serve in some of the most hostile environments on the earth. And while it's fashionable in some circles to deny it, I firmly believe that America is the greatest nation on earth. The experiences during my campaign also impressed on me singular life lessons, and I thought I might share some of those lessons with you today. At the beginning of a campaign, you experience a good deal of what I'll call unwelcome anonymity. Nobody knows who you are. Sometimes, by the way, people would come up to me and say, you know, 
you look familiar. Who are you? And I have a standard response to that. I say, I'm Tom Brady, the New England Patriots. And that evokes a predictable laugh. But there was one time a guy said, oh, I'm a fan. Can I get a picture? And I, I said, sure. Uh, I can only imagine the guffaws when he shows that picture to his friends. There was another, uh, another time uh, when I was reminded of my anonymity. I was uh, at a hotel in San Francisco, at a Marriott hotel there. And I'd arranged for a massage to loosen my back. Because believe it or not, after hundreds and sometimes thousands of handshakes in a day, my back got tight on the one side, I shake with my right hand. And so after the massage, the masseuse, who obviously was unaware of my political career, she remarked to my assistant who was there, Mr. Romney has strong legs. He's a dancer, isn't he? <laughs> That's probably the best uh, compliment I got during the campaign. Uh, but the, uh, the anonymity is soon lost, and in some remarkable ways. Uh, during my last campaign, I was taken aside by one of our national security agencies, and I was informed that all my emails were being monitored and closely read by a foreign government. In fact, the same was true for all the people who had emailed me, my staff, my friends, my family, and all of their mails, emails were also being monitored by the government of that nation. And believe it or not, the words of a hymn came to mind. Angels above us are silent notes taking of every action, then do what is right. <laughs> no, the, the government involved was no angel. But our words and deeds may well be recorded in heaven. And so, I presume, are the pages we open on the Internet and the sites we browse. Our anonymous surfing may not be recorded on earth, but it surely leaves an imprint in the book of life. Remember, every day you're writing your autobiography. Now, early in the campaign, it can be difficult to attract an audience to a political rally, particularly if it's during working hours. And I remember early during my campaign, one event we'd scheduled in New Hampshire. Now, we have a summer home in that state, in Wolfboro, but the rally was at least an hour away from our home. And I knew the media that followed the campaign would read a lot into whether or not I'd attracted a crowd to this event or not. So you can imagine how relieved I was to step onto the stage and see a large and enthusiastic audience greeting me. Looking closer, I realized I was looking at almost the entire Wolfboro branch of the church. <laughs> Fortunately, the media hadn't figured that out. <laughs> now, there may be times in your life when you feel that it's a bit of a burden being a member of the church. Some folks will think you're not Christian. Some may be insulted that you don't drink with them or others may think you're trying to be better than them by not swearing. But I can affirm this based on that experience and many others in my life. Your fellow members of the church will be a blessing that far more than compensates. They'll bless you when you're sick, lift you up when you fall, help you raise a teenager, counsel you about a job, and yes, even move your unpacked junk into an apartment. We are not perfect. As a matter of fact, in many things, we're probably no better than anyone else. But we are remarkably good as a people at reaching out our hands to one another in need. Decide to be one of those that does just that. Now, a campaign can be a heady thing as well. At my first 2012 presidential debate in Denver, the miles of Interstate Expressway from my hotel all the way to the editorium 
were closed to all traffic for me. My motorcade was led by 30 or so motorcycles and police vehicles. Their lights were flashing red and, and blue. I was accompanied by the Secret Service. That includes not only the detail of agents that surrounded Anna and me in our bulletproof SUV, but also the tactical unit that follows, armed with machine guns and sitting with an open rear tailgate facing any vehicle that might come from behind us. And the Secret Service was only the uh, icing on the adulation cake. Day after day, thousands of people were shouting my name, investing in me their hopes for victory. The day before the election, Kid Rock electrified a packed arena in New Hampshire for me, and the crowd cheered for Anime when we were introduced for three solid minutes before we could speak. The day after the election <laughs> was different. <laughs> the Secret Service was gone, and the cheers were gone as well replaced by the agonizing reappraisal by others of what had gone wrong. And I was back to driving my own car, filling my own gas tank, buying groceries at Costco, just like I've been doing for several decades before. Now, truthfully, Anne and I had never become caught up in all the flurry. I know that may be hard to believe, but throughout the journey, we saw ourselves in exactly the same way as we had throughout our marriage. We knew that win or lose, any acclaim would eventually be forgotten. As uh, Jimmy Durante, a singer from way ago, once sang, fame, if you win it, comes and goes in a minute. What we treasure from the campaign was not the pomp and the popularity. It was the friends that we made. Among the Secret Service, just as an example, we became very close friends with a number of the agents that we spent time with. In fact, as we prepared to go on to the stage to concede victory to President Obama, more than one of those agents fought back tears. We miss them as friends, not as um, power candy. Now, living life can be self-consuming. Who you are can be overshadowed by what you do or by what you've done. If you allow that to happen, the inevitable twists and turns of secular life can warp your self-confidence and limit your ambition and test your faith and depress your happiness. You're not defined by secular measures. You're a child of a heavenly father who loves you. You're his work and his glory. And that statement confirms your incomparable worth. The statement also informs your life's most important work, to lift others, to lift your family and spouse if you marry, and to remain true and faithful to the Almighty. Now, I can't speak of my election loss without adding a few thoughts about how I think God works. I know that's well above my pay grade, uh, Elder Rasband. Uh, but, uh, but after five decades of adult life and many years of pastoring in the church, I've come to some preliminary conclusions. First, God does not always intervene in the affairs of men to make things work out the way we'd like them to. In our heads, we all know that. But I can't tell you how many members of the church I've spoken with over my life who think God will help their business succeed or help them get the promotion they want or make their investments profitable. I don't think God will intervene to help you get rich. There may be some exceptions, but I wouldn't count on it. What he does guarantee is written in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 90, 
verse 24. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good. If you walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith ye have covenanted one with another. I once rode in a car with Elder F. Enzio Busha, then of the 70. As I recall the conversation, and it's been a while, he related that while he was a businessman in Germany, the company that he owned was in dire condition, on a path towards bankruptcy and liquidation. He was distraught. One night, in great uh, pain and sadness, he went into a field and knelt in the cold and the dark, and he poured out his heart to the Lord hour after hour. And miraculously, he actually heard a voice from heaven. But only one word was spoken, and that word, work. More often than not, our secular affairs are up to us. Don't count on God to save you from the consequences of your decisions or to arrange earthly affairs to work in your favor. Now, one of the things that I think defines the great majority of Americans I met during the campaign and afterward is they live for a purpose greater than themselves. Their school, their university, their community, their nation, their church. And during my campaign, Ann and I were frequently reminded of our greater purpose. You may find it uh, hard to imagine what it's like to debate an opponent on national TV. I was not a high school debater. In fact, until I got into politics, the only person I'd ever debated was my five-year-old son, Matt, and he usually won. <laughs> my 2012 campaign had 23 televised debates, 20 with fellow Republicans and three with President Obama. And these guys were no debate slouches. Newt Gingrich had been Speaker of the House. President Obama, well, he'd been president for four years. He kind of had his faction nailed down by then. So you may have read that one of the candidates for governor this year in Florida put a fan under the podium when he debated. I know why. Debating can be sweaty business, all right? And so before every one of my debates, I did something to keep things in perspective, to keep myself grounded. At the top of a sheet of paper that was always placed on the podium so we could make notes during the debate, just before the debate kicked off, I wrote at the top one word, Dad. I also drew a small image of the sun. And throughout the debate, when I glanced down at that paper to look at my notes that I'd taken, I was reminded of my father's fearlessness in fighting for what he believed was right. And the sun, that reminded me, of course, of that familiar scripture, let your light so shine. Win or lose that debate, I hoped I would never do anything that would dishonor or discredit the things I hold most dear. Now, during your life, you're going to encounter circumstances that make you sweat. For many of you, the exams and tests won't be over when you graduate, and you're all going to stand at podiums, stand in front of a boss to ask for a raise, or work on some critical project in your employment that will make a big difference in your life. At moments like those, perspective is a very powerful friend. You can welcome perspective through preparatory prayer, by considering the blessings of the temple, or by simply glancing at your CTR ring. Find ways to keep your life in perspective. One of the most meaningful aspects of my campaign was meeting 
remarkable people. I met Lech Walesa in Poland. When the Soviet Union invaded Poland, they rounded up thousands of that nation's most influential people, and then they shot them. There was to be no leader available for a revolt. And against that backdrop, this shipyard electrician said no. No to the oppression, no to the Soviets. And he formed a union, solidarity, of fellow workers, and joined a barricade behind shipyard gates. And the communists blinked. What followed was a movement which led to the freedom of an entire nation. And so when I came to meet this hero, I was honored. And he, he welcomed me in and he said, look, you've come a long way. You must be tired. You sit. I'll talk. You listen. And so I did. And time and again, he implored, by the way, he said, the world needs American leadership. Where is American leadership? He'd go region by region of the world and say, we need American leadership. At the end of all this, and I said almost nothing, he endorsed my candidacy for president. He taught me a lesson. And uh, I guess I don't recall being more humbled than I was that day with Lequilessa. I also met Cardinal Dolan in the rectory of New York City. His is a mighty voice for religious freedom. I met Billy Graham at his mountain home. He prayed for me. His, of course, is a voice that has long called people to come to Jesus. I met the uh, Lutheran former Bishop of Stockholm. His counsel on judging other religions, by the way, was, was instructive. Well, let me pass that along. He said he had three rules for understanding another faith. First, learn about that faith from one of its adherents, not from one of its detractors. And second, compare the best of one religion with the best of another, not the best of one with the worst of another. And third, he said, leave room for religious jealousy. And I said, what do you mean by religious jealousy? And he said that in every religion he had encountered, there was something he wishes that were part of his church. Among Mormons, for instance, he spoke of our missionary program. Among Catholics, their reverence for the Pope and so forth. Now, from all the admirable and heroic people I met, I was impressed with the enormity of the influence of one single person. Time and again, one person makes all the difference in the lives of multitudes. One man ushered in the freedom of an entire nation. One man led to an evangelical awakening. And as we know, one man restored the church of Jesus Christ to the earth. Each of you here will influence other lives. Think of that. Perhaps you'll shape history. Perhaps you'll shape one person's history. Consider with care how you act, what you say, and to what you're going to devote your life to. Because I assure you, your choices will shape the lives of other people. I met other people I call heroes during my campaign, by the way, not quite so famous. At one of my uh, first speeches in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the applause from the audience seemed to be instigated by someone with a loud, piercing shout. Isn't he wonderful? She would yell. Or, uh, we love you, Mitch, you're the best. I can assure you I was as pleased as I was startled. <laughs> and then after my remarks, this delightful middle-aged woman named Joni Scotter made her way up to the stage and threw her arms around me. That was the first time I met Joni, but it was far from the last. Because over the years, I've seen Joni dozens of times. She drives to wherever I may be in eastern Iowa, 
and at every speech her enthusiastic squeals of support energized both me and, and the audience. She's a hero to me. And another day, as my motorcade approached a rally in New Hampshire, I noticed that someone had gone way over the top in decorating their pickup truck. He'd built a scaffold of sorts in the back of the truck and mounted these enormous Romney posters on both sides of it. And the rest of the truck was entirely decked out with my bumper stickers and flags and posters. And there was this man standing next to it. He was tall, white-haired, smoked a pipe, wearing shorts with long white tube socks that came up to his knees. <laughs> a few days later, I was pulling into an event in Iowa, and I saw the same truck. In fact, it seemed that wherever I went, that truck was parked out front, and that man with the white tube socks was standing next to it. Now, that may not seem that unusual, but I was flying from place to place, and he was driving. <laughs> this guy, Jim Wilson, turned out to be 70 years old. By the midpoint of my 2012 campaign, he had attended 150 of my events, and he had logged 40,000 miles on his 1998 GMC pickup. On one of his long drives, some fellows at the fuel stop had given him some lip about uh, his support for me. And so he left, but shortly thereafter, he looked in the bed of his truck and he saw that his posters and scaffolding were on fire. And soon the entire truck was engulfed, totaled. Of course, we decided to help Jim get another pickup truck. Uh, how could I possibly go to a rally without Jim Wilson and his truck at the entrance? And, and by the way, this October of this year, I was in Iowa again to campaign for a candidate who was running for U.S. Senate. And there he was. And kindly, he presented me with a brand new pair of white tube socks. <laughs> Jim is, uh, is also one of my heroes. And by the way, um, running for president is a family affair. And I'm not just talking about my immediate family, but cousins and in-laws that Ann and I hadn't seen for decades showed up at events and volunteered hundreds of hours at campaign offices. One niece painted a portrait of me for a poster. Another solicited his business customers for donations. And he may have lost his job because of it. My family members are my heroes. America needs heroes. You don't have to be larger than life to be a hero, just larger than yourself. And we see heroes every day. Scoutmasters, primary teachers, missionaries, campaign volunteers, parents. I hope you'll choose to be a hero because this world needs a lot more of them. Now, one of the best and worst things about a campaign is that you get a lot of advice. Usually several times a day, someone in an audience would hand me a letter with their 100% surefire way for me to win an election. I was told to take bigger steps when I walked to show that I'm young and athletic. Um, another person said I should stop shaving for a few days to look more sexy. As if I needed that. Uh, of course... Of course, the best advice comes from the people closest to you. Having been a frequent speaker in church, I figured that I didn't need a lot of advice on giving a speech. Wrong. Political speeches are different than church speeches. My dad, by the way, when he was governor of Michigan, joked that he had once entered a campaign speech with, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs> my error wasn't that obvious, but my chief strategist close to me helped me to shorten my long stories, to find applause lines, and to slow down. Advice from your spouse, by the way, can be a tricky thing. 
Anne is my best advisor, but I also look uniquely to her for affirmation and support. She's perfected the art of first heaping on the praise and then ever so gently ladling on a word of advice. Because when it comes to marriage, reproving betimes with sharpness is not a good idea. It can lead to many lone and dreary nights. Uh, now, just like I did during the campaign, you need to have a life coach. You need to have someone who will tell you the truth, tell you that the perfect mate you've been looking for is no more perfect than you are, tell you when you're wrong, tell you what you need to do to make things right. I can assure you that finding someone who cares enough about you to tell you the truth and then is willing to take time to give you their counsel and their coaching, that's invaluable. Look for it. Now, one of my fondest campaign memories was my trip to Israel. I had dinner at the home of an old Israeli friend who I'd come to know at my first job after business school at the Boston Consulting Group. At that time, he called himself Ben Nate because his real name was too difficult for some Americans to pronounce. Today, we know him as Bibi Netanyahu, and he serves as Israel's prime minister. I also had the opportunity there to address an audience in front of the historic Jerusalem city wall. Anne and I stayed at the beautiful King David Hotel, opened in 1931. Our room had a breathtaking view of the old city. And as we were unpacking, Anne remarked with dismay that she had left her Bible at home. A few minutes later, there was a knock at the door. And there, an Israeli security guard handed her a Bible. Apparently, he was listening to everything said in our room. <laughs> Again, angels are silent notes taking. Now, our son Josh, who joined us on this trip, noted that there was a large leather book that sat on the coffee table in our room. It was the guest book for the hotel, and it was signed by many of the dignitaries who had stayed there. We saw the signatures of Margaret Thatcher, Jimmy Carter, President Obama, Richard Nixon, George Herbert Walker Bush, Tony Blair, and also, by the way, Madonna and Bono. And uh, we were duly impressed. But the next day, Anne and Josh went to see the garden tomb, believed to be Jesus' final earthly resting place. Of course, his signature is not in the King David Hotel guest book. Unlike the hotel's famous guests, he was not only a visitor to Jerusalem, he was its very foundation. We can never forget that we are his disciples. We may not hobdob with the famous, but in prayer, we can speak with God every day. I'm so very thankful that I found the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's informed who I am and to what my life has been devoted. It has provided the eternal ordinances of salvation and marriage. I love the Church. I love the members of the Church. I love the music of the Church. It's my witness to each of you that following its precepts and its prophets will bring incomparable happiness now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Life Lessons. We've just heard from Mitt Romney. After the break, we'll return with Dan Clark for the four steps on the stairway to heaven.
This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is life lessons. Next is Dan Clark, CEO of the Art of Significance Leadership Development Corporation at the time of this address, titled The Four Steps on the Stairway to Heaven. When President Worthen asked me to speak to you today, two life-altering experiences surfaced that helped me focus my remarks. I recently returned from an 18-day military tribute tour with my invited guests David Archuleta, Dean Kalin, and Jason Euler, where we performed 14 shows and held six firesides for our combat troops in Afghanistan, Djibouti, Bahrain, and in Kuwait all along the Iraqi border. We were touched by the fearless dedication of our men and women in uniform and even got shot at and returned machine gun fire in our helicopter during one flight, which reminded us of the sense of urgency with which we should live our lives. The second life-altering experience happened on October 23, 2010, when I had the rare opportunity to soar to the edge of space in a U-2 reconnaissance aircraft. Because it was a classified mission, I can only tell you that at 70,000 feet, you can see two-thirds of the state of California. At 80,000 feet, you can actually see mapped outlines of America. And at 90,000 feet, you tear up and feel like you can actually reach out and touch the face of God. It was a spiritual experience I wish each of you could have. For four hours, I sat in the sounds of silence looking at the curvature of the earth gazing into the endless blackness of space, pondering eternity and reflecting on President Uchtdorf's reminder that we are more than just mortal beings living on a small planet for a short season. When we landed, I had become an eyewitness to the words of Alma, for behold, this life is the time for us to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for us to perform our labors. And there are four transformational words in the scripture that I want to discuss today. Life, time, prepare, and perform. I have affectionately named them the four steps on the stairway to heaven. Or as my younger brother Paul said, are you really going to speak about Led Zeppelin? <laughs> Simplifying your life and creating the happiness you dream of and deserve is about attracting and maintaining good, clean, pure, powerful, positive, productive relationships, coming to grips with your own humanness, and appreciating the atonement in a different way. As I've traveled the world, I've come to realize that we become the average of the five people we associate with the most, which means we must be willing to pay any price and travel any distance to associate with extraordinary human beings. Isn't that why you chose to come to BYU? Isn't this why we attend our church meetings each week? Isn't this the formula for creating an extraordinary culture of excellence in academics and building a championship sports program where the coaches recruit one extraordinary human being at a time who happens to be a gifted athlete? It is my experience that when you put a hard-to-catch horse in the same field with an easy-to-catch horse, most of the time you end up with two hard-to-catch horses. When you put a healthy child in the same room with a sick child, most of the time you end up with two sick children. Moral of the story, to be disciplined, healthy, and significant, you need to hang around with the disciplined, healthy, and significant who actually share your same values 
and actually subscribe to the same personal and institutional honor code. Obvious. But do you know anyone who refuses to see this logic and has given up what matters most for what they think they want at the moment? The scriptures clearly warn, for what shall it profit if we gain the whole world and lose our own soul? Or what shall we give in exchange for our soul? I saw this reality unfold with a beautiful, smart, talented BYU co-ed who is an incredible singer-songwriter and has written with many of the biggest names in country music. Consequently, many of the lead singing bad boys of the band are attracted to her with her being attracted to them. As a conservative friend, I tried to counsel her that she has everything she needs to get what she wants. But at some point, she should stop long enough to make sure she wants what she gets. My words continually fell on deaf ears until one day I had an epiphany. I told her she was acting like a dog chasing cars. If the dog caught the car, what would she do with it? Just let it drag her down a road she had not intended and beat her up until she finally let go in divorce? Any of you chasing cars you won't want? Any of you confused about the real definition of love? The Bible says God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Which means love is a commitment, not a way of feeling. Romance is not love. Romance comes from a Greek word that means erotic. So I don't even want to talk about it. However, I do want you to think differently about love. If I love you because you're beautiful, that's romance. But if you're beautiful because I love you, that's real love. It's a value-creating love that inspires us to be the best that we can be. Yet how many of us confuse love, commitment with romance, emotion? What do we set our whole lives Oh, I love her so much, she makes me feel differently than I've ever felt before. Oh, I love him so much, he makes me feel differently than I've ever felt before. So do breakfast burritos. (laughs) If you think you're in love, just maybe you need a long cold shower and a box of Rolaids. True love is not finding someone who is perfect, it's finding someone who is perfect for you. So when you're apart, you always say, I like me best when I'm with you. I want to see you again. I like me best when I'm with you. I want to see you again. Creating the life of happiness you deserve also requires that you come to grips with your own humanness. I know what you had to do to get into BYU. Congratulations for qualifying both spiritually and intellectually. Most of you are on your high school honor roll every time. That was not the case for me. And I'm fortunate that my dad cut me some slack. One time I came home with a report card, had four F's and one D on it. My dad's response, son, looks to me like you're spending too much time on one subject. (laughs) You gotta love my dad. The part of your extremely high achievement world here at BYU that is often forgotten is the frightening reality that when you do make a mistake, mess up, fail or fall, it is usually harder on you than most. BYU is a school of academic and sports champions, which means that around here, losing hurts worse than winning feels good. And even though the Doctrine and Covenants gives us comfort, stating, thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment, and shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good, the question still remains, so what are you going to do about it? Make excuses or claim the devil made me do it? No, he didn't. 
The Apostle Paul is clear when he said, God will not allow any of us to be tempted above that which we are able to bear. Are you going to get mad? Blame others? Stay mad? I think not. Getting angry and holding a grudge is like you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You need to forgive and get on with it, don't you think? And no, it wasn't peer pressure that made you let down your guard. Pressure is not something that is naturally there. It's created when you question your own ability. And when you know what you can do, there's never any question. So the question isn't, are you going to crash and burn every once in a while? Of course you are. You are human. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Some will counsel you exercise faith, but faith without works is not faith at all. Some will encourage you to have hope, but the words of French philosopher Pascal, caution. Too many live their lives hoping to be happy, but because they only hope, they never really are. They're waiting for someone to ask them to the senior prom and have never taken the time to learn how to dance. And the most common counsel is be patient. Patience is a virtue. Yes, but not always, my friends, not always. Any virtue taken to the extreme can become a vice. Patience allows us to never begin. Patience allows us to mindlessly wait our turn, believing that this is the hand we've been dealt, this is my cross I must bear, and there is nothing I can do about it. It's meant to be. No, no, no. When life gets tough, and it surely will, because if you're not failing a few times, it means you're not pushing yourself hard enough. What you need is an unshakable commitment to persevere. Perseverance is patience with a purpose. Think about it where you willingly and proactively take your turn because you know why you should. This is why creating the life of happiness you deserve also requires that you appreciate the atonement in a different way. We all know the first law of heaven is obedience, and because we're all human and susceptible to the temptations of the world, God told us through Moroni, for behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. We commonly call this inherent ability to discern right from wrong our conscience, which means our conscience will never fail us. Only our desire to follow it decreases as we continue to do the wrong thing. And because Heavenly Father knew our free agency would get us into trouble when we didn't follow our conscience, John 3.16 beautifully states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I testify that Jesus is the Christ, that he died on the cross, was resurrected, and atoned for our sins. He's my personal savior. I know he lives. Which means the Lord is not disappointed when you fall or transgress. The Lord is only disappointed when you don't learn the lesson and get back up and go again. The atonement of Jesus Christ is continuous and real, which means pain is a signal to grow, not to suffer. And once we learn the lesson the pain teaches us, the pain goes away. In life, there are no mistakes, only lessons. So if you ever find yourself in a position where you need to talk with an ecclesiastical leader about repenting and receiving forgiveness... Remember that discipline is to teach, not to punish. You can't increase a person's performance by making him feel worse. Humiliation immobilizes your behavior, which means you can walk into your bishop's office with the comforting and motivating 
assurance of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's words when he said, Repentance is not a long, drawn-out process. Repentance takes as long as it takes for you to say, I'm going to change and mean it. And while you're working with your loving bishop, will you make sure you're also working on loving yourself? Every therapist will tell you that when you mess up at any level, the hardest thing for you to do is to forgive yourself. I promise it will always be okay in the end, and if it's not okay right now, it's not the end. This brings me to the second transformational word of Alma's wisdom, time. Using your time wisely is about realizing there are no ordinary moments and finding your personal why. I love what NFL Hall of Famer Emmett Smith said about his 24-7 understanding of time. Quote, winning isn't something that happens suddenly on the field when the whistle blows and the crowds roar. Winning is something that builds physically and mentally every day that you train and every night that you dream. When you boil it down, think about it. There are really only two times in life, now and too late. Today you've never been this old before, and today you'll never be this young again, so right now and every right now matters. Which means no matter what your past has been, you have a spotless future. Which means you can't always control what happens, but you can always control what happens next. Are you getting all this? Do you believe it? Do you believe that you can actually leave this Marriott Center different than you were when you arrived? Do you really believe that one moment in time can change forever? I do. Proof. I was on the program with Henry Winkler, a famous actor who starred in a 1970 sitcom on TV called Happy Days. And the sad thing is most of you are so young, you don't even know who I'm talking about. He's the coolest guy who ever lived. You need to Google him. After our speeches, he decides he wants to treat himself to a matinee movie, so he slides into the side exit door of the theater. And as Henry Winkler shuffles himself through the aisle, he finds himself a vacant seat. As Henry Winkler turns to sit down on the chair to look up at the movie screen, the little girl sitting right behind him smiles this giant smile. She points her finger and she slowly says, Fonzie. Henry Winkler immediately snaps into the Fonzie character from Happy Days. Hey, whoa. And the lady sitting next to the little girl passes out. <laughs> Henry Winkler milks the mama. Whoa, I thought this only happened on TV drama. Hey, how cool is this? Whoa. Theater manager comes out, takes care of the woman's needs. She's lying in the aisle, cold pack on her forehead. She's asked one question. Why did you pass out? She said, my little girl is autistic. And that is the very first word she has ever spoken in her entire life. You gotta believe that one moment in time can change you forever, either positively or negatively. The difference will be how you react and what you learn from it. In other words, things happen for a reason, but it's our responsibility to determine what that reason is. Mark Twain explained it perfectly when he said, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. And in my experience, when your why is bigger than your why not, you can always persevere to become significant. May I illustrate with another life-altering event that actually links me to why I'm here today? I played football for 13 years total, and one day in practice, the dream ended. We had a tackling drill. Coach blew the whistle. Two of us ran into each other full speed. The only parts of our bodies that made contact, our helmets crashed into each other. My right shoulder was smashed into the cutting edge of my fiberglass pads 
And we slammed to the ground. And when Lyle got off of me, my eye drooped. I had lost the speech, couldn't talk anymore. My right side was just penetrated with a piercing, deep pain that felt like someone was burning my body and my arm dangled helplessly at my side. Coach comes running over. Clark, Clark, you all right? What happened? Rakasho, Rakasho from my roll. He says, whoa, are you from Spanish Fork? I'm just kidding you. <laughs> he said, you better just lay there. I said, whoo. A doctor that was present on the field, he came over and he examined me. He pulls the coach aside. He says, Clark's got serious nerve damage. In fact, he might even have serious brain damage. Coach looks at him and says, how will we ever know? Nice guy. Finally, my eye went back to normal. My speech came back. I could basically talk again. But my right side stayed paralyzed. My arm dangled helplessly at my side. I talked to him and it wouldn't move. I stayed paralyzed for 14 months. Went to 16 of the very best doctors in all of North America. And every single one of them told me I would never get any better. Ever heard that? What happens if you believe it? You never get any better. And yes, I had family and friends come to me who cared and said, hey, we know what you're going through. No, you don't. No one does. Psychologists remind us that the average person talks between 400 and 800 words a minute, and yet we think between 800 and 1,200 words a minute, which means no one ever knows everything that we think. No one ever knows everything that we feel. No one ever knows everything that we really want to say. The author Thoreau was right when he wrote, men lead lives of quiet desperation. So again, the question remains, what are you going to do about it? You can't quit. It's a league rule. Yet no one knows your pain and sorrow, so where do you go? And to whom do you turn? If you remember nothing else I say today, we always remember that you're never all alone at any time or for any reason because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is always there and always understands everything you're going through and will help you help yourself through it. In my darkest moments, I knew I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Obviously, I received several priesthood blessings over the course of my ordeal. And yes, the Lord blessed me with strength to carry on. However, although he could have completely and instantaneously healed me, he didn't. I felt like the brother of Jared, where God told him to build a boat, but he didn't tell him how to light the journey. He had to find the solution on his own, which incidentally included him asking the Lord to touch the stones to illuminate the way. In my case, this meant getting better would also be a joint venture between heaven and me, where I would pray and plead to Almighty God as though everything depended on him and work as though everything depended on me. Bottom line, I stayed paralyzed for 14 months because I was asking the wrong questions. I was blaming God, asking, how could you let this happen to me? and asking the doctors how to get better when I should have been asking God why did this happen and asking myself why should I get better. You see, once we answer why, figuring out the how-to is pretty simple. Part of my answer was realizing that football was just what I did, not who I am as a man. And when you identify yourself in terms of what you do instead of who you are, you become a human doing instead of a human being. Unacceptable of significance is, is what you seek. Now that I've fully recovered, I must confess that my accident is clearly one of the best things that has ever happened to me. Because adversity introduces us to ourselves, I am the man I am and have the perspective I have because of this heartbreaking, dream-shattering ordeal. And through it all, I learned that if you do today what others won't, you can accomplish tomorrow what others can't. Guaranteed, with God's help, you can always turn your setbacks into comebacks and your stumbling blocks into stepping stones. This brings me to the third transformational word of Alma's wisdom, prepare. 
Preparing yourself to meet God is about serving the Lord on a mission and judging less and accepting more. Let me explain. Brother and Sister Smith were in their late 70s and had just been baptized into the church one year prior. So they'd just barely gone to the temple to to be sealed to one another, and they'd just received their patriarchal blessings. In a fast and testimony meeting right before I left on my mission, this elderly Brother Smith stood and he said, I want the attention of all the young men and young women. I want to share a paragraph from my patriarchal blessing. He reaches in his pocket, pulls out the blessing, unfolds the paper, and he reads, Brother Smith, you and your wife would have joined the church many years earlier, except the missionary who was supposed to teach you the gospel decided not to go on a mission. To every young man and young woman within the sound of my voice, I challenge you to prepare yourself to accept the sacred call to serve a full-time mission. And for those of you who have not chosen to go on a full-time mission or have come home early for personal reasons, or have chosen to serve our country and protect our freedom in our amazing military, or are one of our wonderful friends of other faiths, Know that we love you and need you and honor you and that you are as as equally significant to the Lord as everybody else and that you still have been called to serve the Lord on a mission in other ways, which is the best way to prepare to meet God. Preparing to meet God also requires that you judge less and accept more. May I repeat that? We need to judge less and accept more. I served my mission in Ireland and my companion and I were sent to the south to open up a town called Tralee that had no members. And one day as we were contacting people, a woman answered the door and she said, Elders, come in. I noticed that she hadn't read my name tag or our name tags, so I asked her what she knew about the church. Proudly she said, I'm a member of the church. I've just been inactive for many years. I said, well, do you still believe? She said, oh yeah, I still have a strong testimony of the gospel. I said, well, do you mind me asking why did you go inactive? She said, yeah, I could never break my smoking habit. And every time I came to church, the members made me feel guilty. They would smell it on my breath and on my clothes. They'd make me feel guilty and unwanted. Then she turns away, and 60 seconds later, she turns back with tears streaming down her cheeks. And she says, I sure wish everybody's sins smelled. We need to judge less and accept more. I've been a young single adult bishop two times. And in my experience, I believe one of the sins that smells the most is the stench of pornography. If any of you in the sound of my voice need a reminder or are facing this challenge on a daily basis, will you please remember in concert with what we're talking about, stop judging yourself as being weak and addicted beyond your self-control and start accepting the fact that it is not enough to say, I will do my best. We must succeed in doing that which is necessary. I'm flying cross-country with my family. I'm sitting at the time by my 10-year-old daughter, and we're playing cards. And I say, Alexandria, hold your cards up closer to your face so I can't see them. She turns to me and scowls and says, just don't look. (laughs) Any questions? Am I going too fast? Didn't President Uchtdorf remind us in a recent conference talk, just stop it? May we always remember that the same God who made you made me and others too. Which brings me to the fourth and final transformational word of Alma's wisdom. Perform. Performing your labors is about raising your bar and supporting each other in our righteous desires. I paid big bucks by the National Football League to come in and work with the team and somehow take those players to the next level 
And it's kind of the same similar assignment that I feel addressing you here at BYU. When I walk into that team meeting, there are 53 elite athletes who collectively represent over $105 million in annual salary. That's sick. What do you say to them? Well, the good news is the same thing that motivates them is what motivates me and you. Expectations. So I ask a captain of the team and an assistant coach to hold a broomstick 12 inches off the floor. And ahead of time, I get the name of the best, most gifted athlete on the team who can leap 38 inches high. Do you know how high that is? And for the record, every single one of the 32 NFL teams has at least one player on their roster who can jump 38 inches high. Without even getting any running start, they just stand there and go, eat a Big Mac, drink a caffeine-free Diet Coke before they land. They're like, whoa, dude. And this prima donna is always sitting on the back row, so I call him out by name. And sure enough, it takes him about 22 and a half minutes to walk to the front of the, the room, like Taysom Hill does when he runs for about a 40-yard scamper. And now he's standing in front of the room, the captain and the assistant coach, they're holding a broomstick 12 inches off the floor. Superstar is standing in front, and I say, do you think you can jump over that 12-inch high broomstick? He always looks at me like, why are you wasting my time? Are you stupid? So I changed the question. Will you jump over that 12-inch high broomstick? He always pacifies me, skips over the bar, and then stares me down, so I stare back. And here's where the teaching begins. Why did you only jump 12 inches high when you and your teammates know you can jump 38 inches high? And the answer is always the same, because that's all you asked me to do. How high is your bar? Everybody with whom you play, study, worship, and work knows how high your bar is because they see it every day. But only you know how high it should be. Only you know if you're pushing yourself to your ultimate capacity and potential as a human being, physically, mentally, spiritually, and yes, socially. And finally, performing your labors is about supporting each other in every righteous desire. At the end of every day, who you are and what you have accomplished is determined by the support you have received and given to others. You know, one of the things that I've noticed about you here at BYU as I frequent this campus, you know something that most of the rest of the world does not know. When you graduate, the goal is not to engage and do business with those who want what you have. The goal is to engage and do business with those who believe what you believe. In the world of sports, teams that win the championships are those teams with players who don't want what you want. In sports, everybody wants to win. The teams that win the championships, like here at BYU, are those teams with players who believe what you believe. I want to share one final story that puts across the most significant point of all, and that is we are not asked to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. We're here with the support of each other. In a short vignette that drives this point home, a mother encourages her daughter to come home as soon as school is over. The time comes, the time goes. Thirty minutes late, her daughter walks in through the front door of her home and her mother scolds her. Where have you been? I've been worried sick. You're thirty minutes late. She says, oh, mommy. I walked my friend Sally home. She dropped her doll on the sidewalk. It broke all the pieces. It was awful. 
Her mother said, so you're late because you stayed to help your friend pick up the pieces of the doll and put it back together again? She said, oh no, mommy, I didn't know how to fix the doll. I just stayed to help her cry. My prayer is that you will leave here today more committed than ever before. To be there for each other, not just in sharing tears of sadness, but in sharing tears of joy and victory. As you support one another in your climb up the four steps on the stairway to heaven. That your life will be significant. Your time will be well spent. That you will prepare in every way and perform in every moment. So when you do meet God, you will hear those most rewarding words that make it all worthwhile. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And be received into heaven that you may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true. For the Lord God hath spoken it. Because this could be my only chance of a lifetime to address you, I want you to know, especially those of you who are friends of other faiths, I know God lives. I know he hears and answers prayers. I testify that Heavenly Father knows your name, that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is always there for you as he's always been there for me. And that when we leave here, the challenge is on the table. Because one moment in time changes everything, because no matter what your past has been, you have a spotless future, we can actually start preparing to meet God in a more intensified way the second we leave the Marriott Center here today. And I challenge you and myself to do so. In the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Life Lessons with thoughts from Mitt Romney and Dan Clark. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.